From the Missouri School of Journalism, welcome to Global Journalist. I'm Jason McClure. In 2015, the Taliban issued a death threat against an Afghan man named Hassan Fazili. Hassan, his wife Fatima, and two daughters were forced to flee and prepared to set out on a long overland journey to Europe seeking asylum. Now, this by itself isn't all that unusual. There are around 2.6 million Afghans living as refugees in other countries. But Hassan's story is a bit different. In Afghanistan, he was a fairly well-known filmmaker. And so from the very first day of his family's journey, he, Fatima, and the children began shooting a film about it using mobile phones. What follows is a more than two-year odyssey across Central Asia to Southeast Europe that's captured in the new documentary, Midnight Traveler. The film premiered at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival and shortly afterwards screened at the 2019 True False Film Festival in Missouri. So on this special edition of Global Journalists, we're going to be taking a close look at this unusual film, how it was made, and what it shows us about this moment in history. For this, we're pleased to be joined in studio by the film's producer and writer, uh, as well as the editor, Emily Madavian. Emily, welcome. Thank you. Well, first of all, tell us about the family that is the subject of this documentary that shot themselves on this incredible voyage. Uh, both Hassan Fazili and his wife Fatima, they were filmmakers in Afghanistan. Tell us just a little bit about their background. Yeah, so they're, they're both really interesting people in their own right because they both came from pretty conservative families. As he says in the film, his father and all his brothers were mullahs. And her, her family was also quite conservative. But nonetheless, they ended up deciding to be artists. And he worked in television and theater um, and making films. And she also was an actress on television in Afghanistan. She was on television serials and began making short films not too long before um, before this film began. And they also owned like sort of this bohemian cafe in Kabul. Yeah, they did. They co-owned with some friends something called Art Cafe, which was an absolutely gorgeous looking space that was a cafe. It was a gathering place for artists. They hosted, you know, performances and poetry readings and all that kind of stuff, which it, women and men sat, t- sat together. And um, that also drew the ire of more conservative members of, you know, government and police and the Taliban. Well, talk to us. I mean, talk to us about how Hassan got in trouble with the Taliban and ended up having to leave. Yeah. So the the really the the thing that was the big problem was his film piece. Um, It was actually a uh, it was a work for hire project. So he was brought on by the Peace Commission in Afghanistan to direct a documentary that they had um, funded and set up. And it had as its primary subject a man named Mullah Turjan, who is an Afghan um, Taliban commander. And he, in the documentary, talked about laying down arms and returning to civilian life and choosing peace. And when it aired on national television, the Taliban was so upset that they assassinated this main subject. And then um, through a tip, uh, Hassan found out that he also um, was on a hit list for the Taliban, and that's how they knew they had to flee. Well, talk to us. How did he? How did he get this tip? How did he get this message that he was threatened? It was. A, it's actually kind of a touching story. He had this multi-decade-long friendship with um, a man that he had met through friends at a wedding, and they had been extremely close for many years. And then, for whatever reason, in in the last I don't know how many years, maybe five or six years, he had. Um, joined the Taliban. So he was he was working with them. And um, he and Hassan 
remained friends, even though they had obviously political differences. And it was because of his sustained friendship with this man on the other side of the political divide that he found out um, his phone rang and it was his friend. And his friend basically said, you have to get out of here. Your name is your name's on this list. And sort of one of the elements of this film that is interesting is that the family, they don't take off for Europe right away. They actually go to Tajikistan for almost a year, I think, to apply for asylum there. I mean, it seems like they they made a big effort not to go on this journey that they end up having to go on. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a kind of misconception that everyone who ends up on the migrant route is just dying to live in Europe. And Certainly in the case of this family, that's not true. They they would have much rather stayed in their own country, which, you know, is a culture they love and they were working hard to build, you know, arts and women's rights and things like that. So initially they fled to the closest safe country they could get into, which was Tajikistan. Um, and they were just hoping that from there they could find somebody who would, you know, provide them safety and they could work out what to do. But unfortunately, there's a, a fair number of Afghan refugees in Tajikistan and the government of Tajikistan which isn't particularly wealthy, um, had passed some laws that were anti-refugee. And so what they found out over the course of their time there is that basically some deals had been made with the government and then with international organizations like UNHCR to limit the support that could be given to Afghan refugees inside Tajikistan. And what that meant was that they were basically blockaded from any kind of resettlement program all of which require access through the UNHCR. And all UNHCR was allowed to do was get them an exit visa to return to Afghanistan. Okay, so uh, at this point, then Hassan decides he's going to make a, they're going to go to Europe and he's going to make a documentary about it. Talk to yeah. us about how you, you live in Idaho. How do you get involved in this <laughs> project, which started, what, 2015, several years ago? Yeah, so it started in April 2016. That's when we actually started filming. I knew him already because I had made my first film in Tajikistan and I wrote my dissertation on Tajikistan. So uh, I knew him already through mutual friends and I was involved in trying to find out what was going on with their case initially because we were all hoping that they they could simply get uh, resettled from inside Tajikistan and avoid the dangerous migrant route. Um, when it became clear that they were going to have to take the migrant route. Uh, I was in contact with them, and I told them that I would, I would help. You know that they wanted to shoot their story. They felt it was important um, to kind of raise up the voices of of people like them who were in this uh, real catch twenty two in terms of the refugee and asylum system. And I said I would help. So um, what that entailed was in the beginning was basically making sure that they had the logistical support that they needed, finding people who could meet them and get the footage handed off so the footage for the film was safe, that kind of thing. Well, so uh, we should say that there's it's Hassan and Fatima, and then they have two daughters as well, uh, a nine, ten-year-old girl maybe named uh, Nargis, and a younger daughter who's maybe four or five uh, named Zara. And so they set off on this road trip from Afghanistan. It, it, it almost feels like sort of a classic family trip movie at the start because there are lots of scenes of them in the car and the kids are bored in the car and are kind of whining like, oh, this is such a long trip. There are all these neat roadside scenes. But then once they sort of get through Iran and into Turkey, the film, it, it sort of starts to take on like a darker, a darker tone. Talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the 
those discoveries or the shifts that are in the film, um, when we were putting it together, we were trying to mirror what it actually felt like and what, you know, what the actual experience was. So going into it, they knew that it was dangerous, right? They, I mean, they had read the news, but they didn't have a lot of details. They didn't, they hadn't ever been through anything like this before. They were sort of middle-class people, you know, trying to figure this out as they went. So for as long as it seemed safe and things were going okay, you know, they were, they were all right. Um, but then, yeah, then a, a few times things started to happen that were quite frightening, um, quite upsetting. And, uh, and then it became really the priority was about how to protect their daughters, how to, um, you know, find safety in a more temporary sense sometimes, not just even like in the sense of asylum, but like where do we sleep tonight, that kind of thing. A reminder that you're tuned into Global Journalist. On today's program, we're talking about the new documentary, Midnight Traveler, which follows the more than two-year journey of an Afghan family fleeing the Taliban in hopes of a brighter future in Europe. Our guest today is Emily Madavian, the film's producer and writer. Well, Emily, they end up making it to Istanbul and Turkey, so they're like right on the doorstep of Europe. And here, they actually have to go to find people smugglers who give them some options about how they can get into Europe. Talk about this point in the film, because it feels like the family is at a crossroads in terms of how how they'll go forward. Yeah. Um, so, you, yeah, you see them in the film meeting with a smuggler who's giving them prices to take a boat to Italy. And um, at the time I was talking to them and, you know, we really didn't know what the better choice was. Do you try to cross a bunch of land borders or do you take a boat? And I think we've all seen footage of what happens to some people who take boats? It's very, uh, very frightening to think of putting your family on one of those. Um, so they ended up deciding that they would take the land route, which is it's called the Balkan route, generally, right? Because it passes through Eastern Europe and the Balkans. And so they end up going into Bulgaria, um, sort of in this on this trafficking route. They're with a group of other migrants hiking through the woods, uh, climbing over fences with their daughters. They end up making it to this safe house, I guess, controlled by the people smugglers or human traffickers, the people Mm -hmm. that are taking them to Europe. And this is where actually it feels like they're really threatened for the first time. Yeah. I think what a lot of people might not realize about some of these um, smuggling routes is that the smugglers themselves are often if not members of the Taliban, like Taliban sympathizers, or so. So often, the smugglers are people who they you can't necessarily trust, and you're being handed off from person to person. So you might pay one person who tells you that another person's going to meet you, and then another person is going to help you navigate the woods, and so you're you're being handed off, and each of those people is um, supposedly being paid their cut by the first person you paid. This is where they run into a, a problem. And I don't know, you know, the reality of what was going on, but they had uh, the smuggler in that safe house claiming he hadn't been paid. And um, he was threatening that to kidnap both of their daughters if he wasn't paid several thousand more dollars, basically immediately. And at this point in the film, it seems like the family, they're still trying to make it. Their ultimate goal is to make it to Germany, which is where a lot of migrants would like to go because it's it's a country that's been home to a lot of migrants, is quite wealthy, um, and they are trying to still basically sort of sneak their way there, if you will. But sort of shortly after this incident in Bulgaria, they are taken by the authorities. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah, so um, the smuggler dumps them by the side of the road. So they were 
alone in the middle of the night in a country that they didn't know anything about and they didn't know where they were. And of course, they were discovered by the police. Um, they were arrested and held for 12 days in a prison. At that point, we don't see what happened in that prison in the film because their phones were taken from them, so there's no footage from inside there. I called um, some friends in Bulgaria, and so we tried to make sure that they weren't being deported. We sent an attorney, a human rights attorney, out to represent them, and it took about 12 days, and they were released into a refugee camp in Sofia. And inside this refugee camp, they... I mean, their conditions improve a bit. Like, it seems like they're housed in Bulgarian sort of dormitory-style housing. They have some freedom of movement. They can go out into the city. Uh, it looks like there's some aid workers there to help them. But then it also seems like there's some, like, really strong resistance to their presence in Bulgaria from ordinary Bulgarians. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, and Hassan is always like very quick to point out that there were Bulgarians who were wonderful to them because he doesn't want to seem as if he's saying that all Bulgarians are terrible. But the reality is that there's a political party in Bulgaria called Ataka, which I think began um, from a television show or from a radio show. And it's gained, a, you know, enough minority momentum to be a real threat to migrants. Um, and what, what you see in the film is that a group of of these, they're, they're sort of neo-Nazi sympathizers, are uh, going seeking out refugees to attack. So when they're going to the grocery store, they're getting pelted with stones. Um, someone tries to punch their little girl. Um, they come to the, the camps to, to protest. And so the, they really feel threatened when they leave because there are these people who are in a sense, kind of hunting them or trying to terrorize them. So even though they're sort of within a somewhat fenced compound, they also don't feel like the Bulgarian police do a lot to protect them there either. No, they, I mean, that's that's one of their big complaints is that the police, from their perspective at least, they, they feel that the police are protecting the rights of the um, the other side. Uh, it might of very well... Right, of the far right, the far right, yeah. It might very well be that what they're doing is protecting the right of like freedom of protest and trying to keep things peaceful. But because so many people in the camp had been attacked already, um, you know, physically hit, bleeding, that kind of thing, um, the migrants didn't feel safe having those people surrounding their camp shouting and screaming. And they felt that the police should be doing more to make sure that, that they could leave and do something like go to the grocery store safely. And part of what's interesting here is that like when the family comes into Europe, at first they're sort of hiking through the woods, hiding, they're in the hands of human traffickers, and then all of a sudden they're sort of in the formal government system for refugees and migrants and held in a detention center and then sort of a more open refugee camp. And then, as you mentioned, they start to feel unsafe in Bulgaria, and then they're back out on the run again, mm -hmm. and we, we sort of follow them like hiking through the woods again for several days to try to get to Serbia, where they think things will be different or better. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so they, they felt, um, first of all, uh, things in Bulgaria weren't going particularly well. For instance, the police took their passports and never gave them back. To this day, their passports, as far as we know, are with the Bulgarian police. Um, and then there were these attacks and, and the, the protests, and it was getting pretty traumatic for their daughters living, living in that kind of a space. So they thought that um, maybe they should continue further on the, on the smuggling route, see if they could get to another country where their asylum case would be you know, heard maybe with more seriousness. So that meant 
there are a few routes, but the one that they decided to take was to Serbia. Uh, and it, it took quite a few days of waiting in the woods. And again, they were in this precarious position of being um, at the mercy of smugglers who they don't know and they don't know if they could trust. You mentioned the trauma to their daughters who are about nine and four or five years old in the film. I wanted to ask you like, what you picked up from Hassan and Fatima about being both filmmakers, making a film about your family. And of course, a lot of the film is uh, imagery of their kids, of their daughters, and how they're encountering these different obstacles. But there's also like, there's some really difficult moments I would imagine both as a filmmaker, especially as a filmmaker, to be recording your children suffering or going through really difficult experiences. Talk to us about how they sort of negotiate that terrain. Yeah. I mean, the filmmaking, I think, was um, it was kind of a double-edged sword in terms of how it hurt or helped their daughters. And they had different perspectives on it. So on the one hand, their daughters were involved in shooting. It gave the whole family a sense of purpose. It, it gave them something to do with their daughters and to say, like, look, people are going to see this. So for a long time, I think Nargis, particularly the older daughter, felt that the film was important. And, you know, there's a fair amount of footage that she shot in the final film. On the other hand, as things happened that you would not want your daughters to relive, or you know, private family moments, he began to question, you know, the ethics of of spending uh, his time capturing images of his own daughter's suffering, and that in that became a, a a theme in the film itself. So there's a scene later in the film where he really confronts that directly. It was something that he genuinely discovered along the way. You know, it's a classic ethical problem for documentarians and journalists. Um, and I think for him, it was just very pointed in this instance because it was his own daughter's. And I mean, this is something that's touched on in the film. As you mentioned, these were middle class Afghanis. They had a pretty good life inside Afghanistan. And they set out on this odyssey, basically, to Europe that lasts a couple years. They wind up in this refugee center uh, again in Serbia, and they're kind of just warehoused there for a long time with what looks like nothing to do, basically. Um, do you get the sense that Hassan like felt guilty or he felt regret about the decisions that he made? I mean, in a way, like uh, it's very honorable what he did in making films about the Taliban, but at the same time as a parent, you're saying, like, was, was this the best decision for my, for my family, for my children? Yeah. Um, I think he did. I think that as it became more and more difficult to to get his daughters back into a normal life, he felt increasingly like the choices that he had made, which, like you say, seemed like the honorable or the right political choices, that perhaps they were ultimately hurting the people that he loved. It's a very difficult position to think backwards on, though, because what would the alternative be? He's He's got two daughters that he adores who he wants to see educated. He wants them to grow up and do what they want with their life. And um, there's only so much protection he can provide for them to allow that to be a reality for them inside his own culture. So you have a catch-22. You can fight for what you want to be the social change to make the world you want your daughters to live in, but then potentially there's a backlash against that and you end up in this difficult position with them anyway. Um, so I don't know that he has a solid sense of what the right thing to do would have been, but I think he's conflicted 
certainly about his role in the sort of in the things they've seen now in their life. This is Global Journalist. I'm Jason McClure. On today's show, an in-depth look at the new documentary, Midnight Traveler, about one family's flight from Afghanistan and their two-year journey to Europe in hopes of winning asylum. The film debuted at this year's Sundance Film Festival and screened shortly afterwards at the True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri. Joining me in studio is Emily Madavian, the film's producer. If you're interested in more Global Journalists, check us out online at globaljournalist.org. There you can find our archives and additional coverage of underreported international news and human rights issues. You can also like us on Facebook, where we live stream, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or see our videocast on YouTube. So a good part of the family's journey ends up actually being in this refugee center in Serbia. They're kind of living in these little houses. It looks like they're they're sort of fenced in, but it's not like a, it doesn't seem like a high security place, but it seems like the real challenge, uh, as I think it is for so many people who end up in refugee camps or migrant camps, is that it's just boredom. Like there's nothing to do. Your life is on hold. You can't really work. You can't really form ties to the community. You're just there waiting for somebody else to make a decision about your future and you have no control over when that will happen. And there's like really kind of a touching scene uh, with the oldest daughter, Nargis, where she's dancing to a Michael Jackson song. I mean, talk, talk to us about that episode. Um, it, you're absolutely right. And I think making this film was one way to combat that boredom for them. Um, so that scene, they all love Michael Jackson. Central Asians generally like Michael Jackson. A lot of the beats are similar to Central Asian beats. Um, so she was cleaning. She sort of cleaned the whole room up in the course of dancing to music. And it's this little tiny room, um, but that's the whole home that they have at that point. And this is how, you know, this really, really bright, really artistic, at that point I think she was about nine and a half year old girl, how she entertains herself when she really has nothing else to do. And of course, the song that she's dancing to is the song, They Don't Really Care About Us, which of course resonates with what's happening to the family in real life as well. But in fairness, I mean, this isn't this isn't really a film about sort of the miserableness of being a refugee, I don't think. There are, there are a lot of really happy, even joyful moments in this journey for the family. There's like this unexpected snowstorm on Christmas and they get in a, a snowball fight. Um, there's the wife, Fatima. She's teasing her husband about being chosen to be a mullah at his refugee center uh, in Serbia, even though he isn't religious himself and doesn't pray. Um, why did you think it was important to include some of these moments along the way? I think, I mean, if there's a, if there's a political kind of bent in the film, that, that was it. It was to include um, the whole of the human experience. And because they're making choices about how to shoot their own lives, they know about the moments of joy. They know that being a refugee isn't just living in, you know, abject suffering for three years on end. Um, but nobody would allow that to to be the reality for their kids, even if they, uh, even if they, even with all of the anxiety that you're living under, you're trying to make some kind of normalcy and happiness for your, your kids. Um, so it was really important to us to include those things because it, it humanizes them. It helps us remember that these are not people for whom this is normal. Um, and it helps us remember that when we look at stories about refugees, um, these are people who, like us, have a, a kind of a broad range of human hopes and desires, and they have joy in their lives, and they have senses of humor, um, even in spite of their circumstance. So the film ends with the family <coughs> in 
Hungary. <laughs> Uh, or being first, they're taken from Serbia to Hungary on a train in sort of nice circumstances, uh, and they're but they end up being held in what looks like a prison, <coughs> basically in Hungary. It's it's this compound with high walls and razor wire uh, mm-hmm. on the top, like you would see in maybe like a medium security prison. The family has like this little tiny sort of enclosed private area just for themselves. Um, but this sort of, for me, it was interesting to see how their circumstances and their treatment varied from country. country. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to us just a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that was something I found really, um, really interesting as I vicariously went on the journey with them. And I think it has a lot to do with the sort of the political tides in given countries and also the history of those countries. Um, In Serbia, for example, because of the civil war that many Serbians experienced in their own lifetimes not that long ago, many Serbians are themselves former refugees. They're Bosnian or they're Croatian. And, um, and there's a significant ethnic minority within Serbia that, that are um, Muslim, or a religious minority that are Muslim. So there isn't quite as much fear of Muslims. There certainly isn't as much fear of, of, of refugees, of people who are fleeing violence. Um, in Hungary, by contrast, we have this government now that is very anti-migrant, very anti-refugee. You know, Orban has talked about himself as kind of like the protecting the edge of Europe, right? Viktor Orban, the prime minister of yeah. Hungary, yeah. So, you know, the, the camp that, it's not a camp, they call it a transit zone, but it, like you say, it looks looks like a prison, um, that, that they're held in is something that was newly built in the last, you know, however, five or six years as a consequence of, of the refugee, quote-unquote refugee crises that are happening. Um, this is their way of handling it. You know, is to is to imprison people while they hear their cases. And there, and there's this really painful irony at the end of the film, where the family is granted asylum to live in Europe, but they're using the exact same documents that they had used to apply for asylum in Tajikistan two and a half years before, before they went on this really difficult trip. Yeah. Uh, what do you think that this story does it offer us any solutions to the to the migrant issue? If there's something that I would like people to learn from that that maybe most people don't realize, it's that, you know, migration and asylum applications and refugee system, those are three different things, right? And um, what they were trying to do at the beginning was access the refugee system, which would have um, kept them from having to travel on the migrant route. It would have saved them, you know, two and a half years of, of trauma to their daughters. Um, and their case, in theory, should have been able to have been heard uh, through that system when they were in Tajikistan. But because no system is perfect, and this system in particular is overloaded and quite broken and subject to the jurisdictions of the local governments where it's operating, um, they are forced to become migrants in order to use the asylum system instead of the migration uh, instead of the refugee system. So the asylum s- system requires that you're standing on the soil of the country to which you're applying. So that means you have to get yourself to the European border. And that meant traveling this whole smuggling route, only to show, as you said, the identical case paperwork that they had already presented in Tajikistan. And and to a government which is, as I said, quite quite anti-refugee. So it, it shows the strength of their case. Well, 
I'm going to stop you because our time grows short, but tell us just what the status is of Hassan and Fatima and their family now. What are, what are their prospects? So they're in, they're in Germany. They're applying to stay in Germany. But the first decision is, will they be deported back to Hungary because of the Dublin Convention? So they're waiting to hear on that. And the Dublin Convention says you have to stay in sort of the first, one the, of the first countries that you enter into Europe. Yeah, exactly. So they're waiting to hear back on that. And then after that, they can have their case heard again. So in even Germany. three years later, their status is still... It's still still up in the air. Well, we're out of time for this edition of Global Journalist, a production of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the Missouri School of Journalism and KBIA Mid-Missouri Public Radio. Many thanks to Emily Madavian for joining us. Thank you. Our producer this week is Edom Kasse with visual editor Grace Lett, Aaron Hay, and Takia Thomas, our audio engineers. Travis McMillan is director. A special thanks to Paul Sturtz of the True False Film Festival. For all of us at Global Journalist, I'm Jason McClure. Thanks for tuning in.